Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Richard Epstein is a professor of law at New York University, a professor of law emeritus at the University of Chicago, and a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Professor Epstein is the author of a book published last spring, The Dubious Morality of Modern Administrative Law. John Yu is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley Law School. He served during the administration of President George W. Bush as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. That's a mouthful for a very important job. Uh, J John is himself a fellow at the Hoover Institution and also the author of a book published just this summer, Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. John, you can count on John to promote a book when he has one out. John, Richard, as we record this on Sunday afternoon, September 27th, this event took place less than 24 hours ago in the Rose Garden. I fully understand that this is a momentous decision for a president. And if the Senate does me the honor of confirming me, I pledge to discharge the responsibilities of this job to the very best of my ability. I love the United States, and I love the United States Constitution. Gentlemen, I'm going to hold you each to one word, a one-word response to the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Richard, one word. Meritorious. Not bad. Notice, though, that he got in as many syllables as he could. John? <laughs> Outstanding. Excellent. Only six weeks before Election Day, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had served on the United States Supreme Court for 27 years, succumbed to pancreatic cancer. Now, only five weeks before Election Day, President Trump has nominated a successor, Amy Coney Barrett, to take Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. Two quotations, gentlemen. Richard Epstein, I'm quoting you. This is the first quotation. Trump already has five conservative votes on the Supreme Court. He should gracefully back off. Let those who win the election, very conceivably a Democratic president with Democrats in control of the Senate, choose the next Supreme Court justice. That's Richard's position. Here's the second quotation. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. The Republican Senate majority will do exactly the job we, are, we were elected to do. We are going to vote on President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court this year. Close quote. Richard Epstein versus the majority leader of the United States Senate. John, who's right? That's not oh. a fair fight. Come on, poor, poor majority leader McConnell. He's going to have to listen to Richard beat him about the head and shoulders for an hour. He'll, he'll be lucky to get out alive. But I think this time the majority leader is right. Uh, the, when the president has encountered a Supreme Court vacancy in the final year of their term, uh, and the Senate's been controlled by the same party, almost all, I think all but one of those nominations have gone to a vote and been confirmed. Think about who we would have lost from the Supreme Court if we were to take the Epstein view. Let's call it the Epstein view. The I Epstein can't, rule. I can't stand to call it the Schumer rule. That, that curdles, no. something curdles me. We would have been uh, deprived of the greatest justice in the history of the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Marshall the great chief justice, he was actually nominated and confirmed after Thomas Jefferson had won the election of 1800. We, on the liberal side, we would have lost William Brennan, whose vacancy arose just a few, I think just a few weeks before the election, got a recess appointment by Dwight Eisenhower, and then was also 
uh, later confirmed. The times when the seat hasn't been filled that arose in the last year of presidency when the president and the Senate were from different political parties, as was the case four years ago with the Scalia vacancy. And in those cases, almost every single vacancy went unfilled until the election. Richard, would you care? Listen, it's going to happen, Richard. The president has nominated Amy Coney Barrett, and Mitch McConnell is going to bring that nomination to a vote. So it's, it's, they have rejected your advice, but still, why would you have advised such a thing in the first place? Well, Explain I mean, yourself. I, I justify myself if I can. First of all, I do not think that this in any way, shape, or form is a legal debate. What John said about the power of the president to nominate and the power of the Senate to confirm is indubitably correct. Uh, he can certainly go ahead with this. The problem is that we are now faced with a political turmoil, which is perhaps second to none, except maybe after the 1800 election when John Marshall was elected. And there is a frightful fight over legitimacy that is going to take place. And the concern that I have is that her name is going to be dragged through the mud. There are going to be all sorts of very dubious uh, misinterpretations of her social convictions, her Catholicism, her academic positions, her judicial right. positions. Uh, the Democrats will be spoiling for a fight. If Biden gets in, there's a serious chance that they may try to make 6-3 into 6-7 by having four people put into the thing. There is nothing in the Constitution which limits the number of Supreme Court justices to nine. What I'm concerned about is some kind of a stability under the these circumstances. And I don't think we've had in recent times anything close to this. Uh, John mentioned uh, the situation with respect to Justice William Brennan, right? Um, 1956. 56, all right. 56, Eisenhower's uh, running for re-election in 56. Yeah, and he thinks he has to carry New Jersey when he wins by 400 plus electoral votes, puts him in as a recess appointment. That is not what is being proposed in this particular case, right? It's being proposed for a full appointment. Now, why do I think it's there is, I think in effect, I'm more worried about democratic hysteria than I am about essentially Republican. So your position is that the president of the United States and the Senate majority leader should permit themselves to be intimidated by democratic threats. Well, I, they, I, they I, should, I would they not. They should fail to fulfill a function that the Constitution clearly gives to them no, it's because not, Richard's worried that Joe Biden will be crossed. No, no, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the fact that it gives him the function. When it says the president shall nominate, it does not impose a duty upon him to nominate at any given point. What it does is it says that he's the exclusive person who's entitled to do the particular nomination. My argument was one of political prudence, not one of a legal situation. It's very clear that uh, this was rejected before it was made. I mean, what happened in this... No, but I want to convert you, Richard. I, 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 want, I, I just, don't want to be... once, I want to... to change the mind of Richard Epstein, the brilliant and distinguished legal scholar whom I so admire, but I think I've got you this time. I don't political, think you have. Political I, I, don't think, Polit I don't think it's an intimidation. I think the problem is it's a credible threat. Suppose he does go ahead with this because he's not intimidated. Biden wins the election, perhaps in consequence of this. He then goes ahead with the other four. Uh, I think that's it. I think what happens is the way... Hold on, hold on. Stop there. Stop there. If you're concerned about political legitimacy and it, and Amy Comey Barrett is not on the court. Yeah. And the court is a court of eight justices. That's an even number. Terrible. This presidential election is looking as though it is likely to be disputed. Questions of mail-in mail ballots, we may not know for days or even weeks after election day who's president, who has been elected. And even as the closely contested and... yeah. 
the even as the election in 2000 went to the Supreme Court, you cannot send a presidential election to a Supreme Court that might divide four to four. It, that it, concern it, alone trumps all the others you've mentioned. Well, I, I, I don't know. I John, don't think me, it does. Um, because what happens is this is a situation where you're trying to replace a liberal with a conservative, and the presumptive division on virtually all of these issues is going to be 5-3. If you're talking about institutionalists who understand the nature of this particular problem, uh, John Roberts, whatever his other strengths and defects, is somebody who would never tolerate a situation in which a tie would come out uh, so as to leave things undone. In fact, I think the much more serious problem right now is one about the mail ballots, where state after state seems to be saying that they know deadly lines based upon the election day, but things could be collected later and counted even after that. What I think the current Supreme Court should do right now is to take all of these cases up and in order to preserve the integrity of the ballot and make sure that the only things that can be counted are those which are either in by the November deadline or if there's some a previous state law restriction that went beyond it, not to expand that particular thing. So I think there are many, many other ways to deal with it. But what I am really afraid of is, in fact, uh, the Republicans, if they lose the Senate in virtue of the fact that they take this maneuver. Let me put it to you another way. Um, I was very much in favor of and very much opposed to a McConnell in 2016. Uh, what I was opposed to was the piety saying, we ought to let the American people decide this and have an election. What he should have said is, we think Merrick Garland is a perfectly qualified judge, but this is going to tip the torch in the other way, which it's not, and we are willing to take our chances of somebody further to the left if, in fact, we think we could get somebody like this this. Uh, there are no constraints on the way in which the Senate can or cannot exercise its decision to consent. And we basically are willing to take the hard line just the way Joe Biden had recommended earlier and just the way the Democrats had done, for example, with Miguel Estrada, basically stonewalling him for three years. Uh, right. the, tra the tragedy on this, let me just say the one final point, is that the Senate vote is a free vote. There are no four cores, no justifications that are built in it. The president nomination is a free vote. And when you have that kind of a situation, you have to expect brawls. It turns out if you try to limit the brawls by saying, oh, you only could reject the nominee for cause, forget about it. You have no idea what that would mean in this particular context. So you take the system as it is. And I certainly respect- Hold on, the hold on. We have, we have a, and we, we can come back to this. We will come yes. back to this. But okay. John, you get one word. And that Ooh. word is either going to be yes or no before we go on to Ruth words Bader Ginsburg. Just 3,000 words. I know. I'm sorry. The life is, life is rough. The <laughs> word has to be either yes or no. Did anything that Richard just said change your mind? No. <laughs> that was easy. All right. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We'll come back. We'll come back to the nominee. We'll come back to questions of the rightness and wrongness of proceeding with this nomination. But first, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Richard Epstein. Again, Richard, I'm quoting you. Why I'm quoting you. John's right. You've already had 3,000 words of spoken, and now I'm get reading more. This is from your recent appreciation of the late Justice Ginsburg. From the first time we talked, and you mentioned that you met her when you were both here at Stanford for a time in 1978. From the first time we talked, it was clear that she was a passionate advocate first and a detached academic second. And so I make brave to suggest in the face of all these glowing tributes <clears throat> that that is exactly the wrong temperament for a judge. Well, uh, let me put it this way. I think many of the justices that we've had have also been, I think, kind of fierce advocates of one form or another. 
Um, I agree with you that it is very, very dangerous, but the way I would put it is slightly different. Uh, fierce advocates, they are either very, very good or they're very, very bad. And, and Ruth had the great fortune of coming on to this advocacy at a time that was ripe for what it was that she had done, namely the sort of the conversion of the equal protection clause in sex cases. The first two, the first one was easy, read, read, read. Actually, as it went further on, other uh, cases became harder and harder. And I think it's not to her credit as an advocate that she did not understand the difficulties, but it is as a credit to her advocate that she was willing to push forward to that. The interesting thing about her feminism, and I don't know if I said that in this article, but she came to the University of Chicago just before she was put on the Supreme Court and gave her feminist position. And it turned out she was a very conservative feminist and still remains one to this day. Now you ask, why are you saying that, right? Well, it turns out modern feminists believe in restructuring society first. And what Ruth believes in is having a good marriage first. And she and Marty had the world's perfect marriage. And, you know, so if Ruth had to do the nursing, you know, Marty would change the diapers. And this is a kind of equality within marriage. And she received a buzzsaw response from many of the more adamant French feminists. And at that point, I said, you know, Ruth is essentially a traditionalist on this thing who wants to tweak the system. And there are many other people who want to upend it. And that is, in fact, the way I think her temperament remained all the way through the time that she was on the court. She was an adamant tweaker. Uh, she was not somebody who wanted to bust it. She didn't want to end the military. She wanted women to be at VMI. Big difference in terms of the way in which you look. And I think she was a pretty effective advocate in dissent. But since she was in dissent for so much of the period she was on the court, there are very few landmark opinions that she actually issued, which have sort of reshaped the law or carried the day. So it's a kind of a mixed legacy on that point. John, <clears throat> Richard, this seems to be, I, I never met uh, Justice Ginsburg, but everyone from Richard Epstein to Antonin Scalia enjoyed her, admired her. You and I exchanged texts the day she died, and you called her a great lawyer yourself. Distinguish between her legacy as a lawyer and her legacy as a justice. And she would have been uh, one of the last century's great lawyers if she'd never been on the Supreme Court. She already had made her reputation uh, for fighting for women's equality, just as Thurgood, I think you could say the same thing about Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall is also a great advocate. Uh, but when they were on the court, uh, their roles shifted. And so she doesn't, I don't, I don't think, assume that kind of greatness on the court that she'd held as an advocate and a law professor. I agree with Richard on that point. There aren't really any great majority opinions. The only one is uh, VMI, the one that required the Virginia Military Institute to admit women. But that's almost ironic because that was the decision which just reaffirmed the principles she had already won 25 years earlier as an advocate before the justices, uh, because it was her fate to be uh, on a court that was trending conservative, as despite that conservatives may grouse and complain about losing, say, gay marriage case here or losing uh, on Roe versus Wade there. The court those has are, been- Those are not trifles, but go ahead. But generally, it's conservative. It's not the Warren Court. If she'd been on the Warren Court, who knows what she might have done in terms of advancing the kinds of revolutionary theories which Richard said she didn't. But right. on the court, and she, and this is a part of her commitment, I think, to the law rather than uh, commitment to some other kind of revolution, she mostly played that dissenting role, you know, criticizing, cajoling, limiting, but not issuing any grand new declarations of how to understand the law, how to reframe individual rights. Uh, it's actually part of the larger story, I think, uh, and I think the Barrett conf nomination reflects this, of I think the Warren Court and liberalism 
and the laws kind of run out of intellectual gas. And uh. I think Justice Ginsburg really was a good symbol that she was a radical in the 70s, but by the 2000s, there's no bright new theories. For, All right. Um, Listen, the, still on Ruth Bader, still on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. One more observation about this. No, Richard, no. We, we have to get on to, to no. Uh, Kennedy was still, the leader of the gay rights movement. Justice Kennedy. All right. Scott, edit out my saying no. I just can't say no to Richard, doggone it. All right. Listen. Staying, staying with Justice Ginsburg, but getting back to this question of the pro- protocols and procedures that are correct and that are unique to the Supreme Court and what is correct and what is not and what judgment justices themselves ought to use. Listen to this list of Justice Ginsburg's maladies. Colon cancer, diagnosed in 1999. Pancreatic cancer, diagnosed in 2009. Heart surgery in 2014. Hospitalization from falls, and she's injured, she falls in 2012 and 2018. Surgery for malignancies in her left lung in 2018. Radiation treatment when the pancreatic cancer returned in 2019. Justice Ginsburg was first diagnosed with cancer at the age of 66, and that's already a year beyond what many people would consider a fitting retirement age. And yet despite increasing ill health and frailty, she serves until her death at the age of 87. Why didn't she step down sooner? Perhaps when President Obama could have nominated her successor. John? I'm actually mystified about that. Although you can see uh, Justice Stevens, for example, made it to 90. You have a lot of justices who are pushing the boundaries of the idea of how long you should serve. The Constitution gives them uh, lifelong appointments, and they can't be removed except for impeachment. It might, I, I, maybe it's the case, uh, I, I don't know for sure, but maybe it's the case that Justice Ginsburg would have been offended at the idea that she should think politically about her retirement, that she should try to time it in some whoa, way. Whoa, 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 but we have her, la- her statement dictated to her granddaughter in the final days of her life. Quote, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Close quote. If that's not political, I don't know what, what it is. It is surely political. I have a different view on this. Um, What's that I think you? when people start to get older, they think abnormally about their own legacy and believe that they become indispensable to the institutions of which they are a part. And mm. so I think Ruth kind of thought, well, me for three years is better than anybody else for 20. And one of the reasons why I'm so in favor of a constitutional amendment that uh, makes the United States Supreme Court look more like the patent and more like the tax and all those stuff is I'd like to see terms of 15 or 18 years with regular rotation. It would ease the pain. We'll come on, to that. Yes. But so, I mean, I think, I think it was a kind of a sense of indispensable vanity that happens when people are in that particular fashion. I've known many great academics who towards the end of their lives are absolutely consumed by their legacy. And my wife is under Mm -hmm. strict orders to get me out of the business when I'm worried about the past rather than worried about the future. All right. So you mean all you got to do is talk to your wife about this and then you're... No, no, no. That's what the only thing that she's allowed to order me to do is if I can't continue at the level that I'd like to continue. Here's some bottles of wine and uh, pies and cookies to bribe her to... Richard, Richard, John, you can... John and I will take you out to the the delicatessen on on, uh, 57th Street and we'll have a word with you. But... It's, it's closed? Oh, that's how old I'm getting. All right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. The nominee, the nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, 48 years old, married, mother of seven, 
including two adoptive children, adopted very young from Haiti, where they had lost their parents. And one child, one of her own biological children with Down syndrome, graduated from Notre Dame Law School, number one in her class, clerked with Judge Lawrence Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, as did, incidentally, John Yu, and then with Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court, devoted 15 years to teaching at the Notre Dame Law School until, in 2017, President Trump nominated her and the Senate confirmed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, which sits in Chicago and covers Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Her judicial philosophy that the Constitution, as she herself put it, should be interpreted according to its public meaning at the time it was ratified. In other words, Judge Amy Coney Barrett is a very accomplished originalist. Also, and since we're going to be talking some about the politics of this, as best I can tell, a truly wonderful human being. Judge Barrett, let's go ahead. Let's just take on the hard issues right now. Judge Barrett and abortion. Adam Liptak of the New York Times, quote, Justice Scalia wrote that the Constitution has nothing to say about abortion and that states should be allowed to decide the question for themselves. There is no reason to believe that Judge Barrett disagrees. John? As far as I know, she's never actually said anything about, about Roe versus Wade itself, other than as a lower court nominee, where she said, I will, of course, obey precedent, which is what all lower court judges have to do. But she has a long track record, uh, not just a track record of judicial decisions where she's never really faced Roe versus Wade, but mm-hmm. a track record of academic law review articles, which really give great insight to her thinking. She's written much more than, say, Justice Scalia had by the t- at the time he was nominated. And these aren't just technical favorites that Richard likes, like Roman repairing law and tax law and accident law, tort law. These are uh, articles about the really tough questions that judges face. How do you interpret an ambiguous phrase of the Constitution? She says, based on its original understanding. What do you do if precedent and what you think the right answer under the Constitution? What do you do? She generally favors doing the right thing, answering the constitutional question with some weight given to past practice. She even is, what does a Catholic judge do when he has, she has to impose a death penalty? And she says, you follow the law. You don't import your Catholic views into law. You, um, you carry out that penalty. If you read all those opinions, it seems to me she would have to say that Roe versus Wade is wrong and that she would vote to overrule it. But you can't say that she's ever specifically made that commitment in writing. Richard? Um, I don't think any, um, no, I I think it's more complicated than that. John and I have had this long battle over the years. How much does public original meaning matter as against to accumulated practice? And John said you give some weight to the latter and more weight to the former. And if you did that in every case, it would be a per se rule. Uh, The difficulty that you have with Roe v. Wade um, is if you try to overturn this particular decision, and you might get the votes for it, uh, you're going to be going into the teeth of sort of general American sentiment, which if you want as a rough numbers is, you know, two thirds of the population think that more abortion is immoral in some serious sense, unless it's done for a particular cause like saving the life of the mother, and two thirds think that it ought to be legal. 
if you got rid of Roe v. Wade, you would not get rid of legal abortions. What you would do is you would see that the states in many cases would either resuscitate laws that allowed it beforehand, I mean, or prohibited beforehand, or would pass those laws to um, allow it to take place today. Uh, so again, it's the same thing as before. How much of a battle do you want to make of something? And when you do this, and what you're going to see is, in fact, that the uh, Roe v. Wade status quo is going to be restored by the state constitutions or by legislation. I'm not so if, you overturn, to... if you overturn Roe, yes. within a week, California, California makes abortion legal. New York and California make yeah. abortion legal. Mississippi and North Dakota make it illegal. And everybody else, there are battles in state. Uh, and, and then there'll be the, and people will then go. Find all other important political questions in our country. The death penalty and euthanasia. Are well, I mean, exactly. So, and so Richard, can I just ask, though, is a legal. Yeah. I'm just asking the two of you to give me a bit of an education here on stare decisis. Stare decisis is, of course, obeying precedent. And all lower courts, even quite fancy lower courts, even the even Judge, well, Judge Silberman is now retired emeritus, but even the D.C. Court of Appeals is supposed to be bound by Supreme Court decisions. That's unambiguous. That's, yes, that's but correct. But the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court alone gets to overturn previous decisions. Brown versus the Board of Education overturns Plessy versus Ferguson, which has stood for decades. They still overturned it. Okay. So on the scale, I'll take just two, two originalist justices known personally to both of you. Antonin Scalia, originalist though he was, argued to me when I interviewed him that there were all kinds of cases where even if they were wrongly decided, they'd become settled law, embedded in practice, and it, oh, attempting to overturn them would do more harm than good. Yes. And then you have Clarence John's Thomas. justice, Justice Clarence Thomas, who says, you know, if the Supreme Court gets something wrong, there's one institution that can correct it, and that is the Supreme Court. And it is our duty to get the Constitution right, and if we see an error that the court has made in the past, we ought to fix it. On that spectrum, of course, I'm talking, those are two subtle minds, and of course, I'm giving a caricature for the sake of asking the question. But on that spectrum, Scalia, let's be realists here. There are all kinds of things that just are embedded in legal practice, even if wrongly decided. And Thomas, who says, well, let's, let's be faithful to the Constitution and, and correct our mistakes. Where's Justice Barrett? John? Uh, I think she's probably closer to the Thomas end rather than the Scalia end, although she, you know, she has said publicly uh, Justice Scalia was her former yes. boss and mentor, and she's written actually, I think, two law review articles and given speeches just going into detail about Scalia's uh, methodology. But at the same time, I think in one of those articles, she does say, you know, stare decisis is sort of a weak presumption. Uh, oh, I see. Okay, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yes. I think where Scalia gives it, even Scalia, on all the important questions, I don't see stare decisis ever made a difference for him. It's I think it tends to limit itself to constitutional questions that aren't that important, but I don't think it made a difference for him with abortion. So really the Scalia position was, if it's something nobody cares about, eh, okay, stare decisis, essentially. Yeah. But if it's important and we care about it, we get to overturn it. I think that applies uh, almost for all of them, actually. Um, I, someone said on an important constitutional question, oh, I'm bound by stare decisis, even though I think the court was completely wrong. I can give Justice Thomas's view, which is, well, if that's correct, then Plessy versus Ferguson never gets overruled. I think, I, right. I mean, I, 
that's I right. Correct on that point. Okay. Hey, Richard, can I? Th this is a yes. sort of incidental question, but it may shed a little more light on just Judge Barrett, judge as she is for now, yeah. Barrett. What does it tell you about someone when you discover that even after achieving tenure at a major law school, as she did at Notre Dame, that person goes right on with the scholarship and continues to publish article after article after article in important legal journals? as she, as Judge Barrett has done. I mean, I look at that and think, are they crazy? I'd be, I'd be improving my game of golf. What does that no. tell you about the quality well, of the mean, mind or the nature of the character? She really didn't want to be on the Supreme Court. No, 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 no. I mean, it's somebody who basically got tenure and then committed judicial suicide when he wrote his book on takings. Um, which declared the new, which the you know, which I mean, well, I, but you know, I'm a long gone. I think what happens is, she, like many important minds, is internally motivated. Mr. Mr. You, whom I'm about to, whom I'm about to quote, as we as we. I just throw one thing about the fact that she kept writing after tenure, was that uh, and it spells so is John. The Democrats in the hearing. It shows she's tough and it shows she's tough and brave. I mean, if you wanted to get on the Supreme Court, you wanted to have you'd go quiet. The last thing you would do would be writing articles about why originalism is the best theory and why star decisis should have so much weight. And what Catholic judges should think about when they vote on things like the death penalty. I mean, she actually uh, confronted the hardest questions. Rather, if you were, as you said, Peter, if you were thinking about it politically, you would have written about all the stuff Richard writes about, taxes and, and Roman law and things that would never get you in trouble in a confirmation hearing. Uh, Richard's done plenty I, I, that has gotten him in trouble. All right, listen, John Yu, writing shortly after President Trump announced his nomination of Judge Barrett, actually this went up minutes after, after the president announced the nomination, raising the suspicion in certain cynical minds that you had written it before you even heard the nomination. No, I, I that. Uh, all right. <laughs> Democrats, this is John. Democrats will attack Barrett for her Catholic beliefs straightforwardly. We've already had a taste of that in the hearings in 2017. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, then as now the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Why is it that um, so many of us on this side have this very uncomfortable feeling that, you know, dogma and law are two different things? And I think whatever a religion is, it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in, in your case, uh, Professor, when you read your speeches, um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for for years in this country. Senator Feinstein has been attacked, got attacked at the time for making, asking that question. And it's all been replayed. I just replayed it myself for you. But when it comes to it, didn't she actually lay out a perfectly fair point that there may be areas in which one religion or another, she was talking about all religions, of course, Judge Barrett is Catholic, but there's a difference between religious belief and the law and the, let's call it, was, I'll put this crudely, but the 
the, the liberal social revolution, which is taking place largely by way of the courts. We all three of us might argue that it should never have taken place by way of the courts, but it has. And Diane Feinstein says, you know, there are a lot of people who have a lot invested in that social revolution. And along comes a devout Catholic nominee. And I want to know, are you going to rule on the law? And what she's really accepting it, really getting at is, are you going to permit to stand decisions that have enabled and in some cases quite directly advanced the revolution in mores, the, the social revolution, or are you going to rule as a Catholic? And my, my first question is, isn't that a fair question? Richard? I think it's a fair question, but I think it's already been asked and answered. Uh, the whole point of Muslim is that she sort of understood that and sort of recognized the cleavage and she would go the opposite way. So to give you another illustration, uh, uh, both Nino Scalia and, uh, and William Brennan were Catholics, right? And it isn't as though they came out the same way on Roe v. Wade. No, um, did not. And Mr. Brennan sort of found that his religion was a slight nuisance in some sense to what he wanted to do politically and he did exactly what he wanted and it goes in the opposite direction. Sonia Sotomayor is a Catholic and she's also on the pro-abortion side of these things. I think it's just very, very dangerous to take some sort of general hypothetical concern and treat that as a reality with respect to the person who's in front of you. I'm Jewish. I mean, I have no idea whether this does or does not influence the way I think on property rights and so forth. And I think, generally speaking, the correct answer is innocent until proven guilty. So asking a question creates an innuendo, but it's not the same thing as making an argument. So I think it's a general point to be taken into account in the abstract, but it's a little bit of, shall we say, improper behavior when it's done in a direct confrontation in a hearing where it is well known that Senator Feinstein opposes Judge Barrett for what she believes on a wide range of issues, many of which have nothing whatsoever uh, to so, do with the Roman Catholic faith. Richard, we already know every single Democrat on the judiciary. Do we know this? I think actually yes, well, a number of them have already declared they're going to vote against her. Yeah. Why even hold the hearings? Why shouldn't well, Mitch McConnell just move this straight to the floor and vote her up or down? Well, I have the following view about this, as I think that no nominee should ever be asked to go before a hearing. Because oh, really? Just, so you do oppose uh, hearings in principle? No, not principles. I'm willing to have people testify about her, but I don't want to put her on the stand because what they're going to do is play the same kind of game. Here's a sentence that you say, explain it away. Our friends could do that quite well. And then they're, they're going to try to do is to get it to pre-commit on future cases, which nobody ought to do. So the correct way to do this thing is to have a battle about her, but not to put her in the middle of it, which was standard practice, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, until Felix Frankfurt uh, took to the floor in order to explain himself. Uh, Brandeis did not appear at his own hearing. And by the way, this controversial hearing where the Jewish issue was very much on the mind of everybody, I think took five days to complete. So I think in effect that what happens is you put the nominee up there, you're guaranteeing a circus uh, and it could, in the worst possible way it could go, and I don't think this will happen here, is you no. could try a Kavanaugh. That's 80 years ago. I mean, we're going to have hearings. Or always Nine, four years ago. It's, oh, Frankfurt. It's sort of like, yeah. saying, you know, it's like saying the president should nominate anybody either. I mean, there is going to be, there was a nomination. The Senate will vote. There will be hearings. I, I actually am, was really repulsed by Senator Feinstein's, and it's not a question. She's making an accusation. And I'm no Catholic, but I'm sitting there thinking, well, what's good enough for JFK is not good enough for ACB, which is this idea that if you're a Catholic, you'll be singled out and accused of allegedly believing a certain set of things just because of your religion. 
So let me put it to you this way. Could you imagine if senators had asked Justice Ginsburg the exact same question, except about her Jewish faith, mm-hmm. or that senators had asked the exact same question to a Protestant mm-hmm. because of their faith and said, oh, I, I see you're a religious person. You're a very devout person. Does your Jewish dogma live <laughs> loudly? I mean, it's, it's a, such a bizarre way of putting it, in fact, but I think it shows to me that what the Democrats are going to do here, I, I, I really wish they didn't. I hope they wouldn't take it on the merits, but instead they're going to use the fact that she's a devout Catholic, that she went to Notre Dame, that she's a professor at Notre Dame, that she has a large family, has had a good, upstanding moral life. They're going to try to use that against her and say, oh, being Catholic to me is a stand-in or a proxy for a certain view about Roe versus Wade or gay marriage. But as Richard just said, Catholic justices vote on both sides of all of those issues. You have Catholic justices for and against Roe versus Wade, for and against the death penalty, Right, foreign against gay marriage. I think so. I think it's terribly, terribly unfair. I, to me, it almost verges on the constitutional prohibition of having a religious test for public office. Got it. Got it. All right. Listen, we can't talk about all of this without talking about how we got to this point. That is to say, the place where the Supreme Court holds such a position in public life that all three of us are, in one way or another, dreading what's about to happen as if the presidential campaign weren't bitter enough, right? Yes. So here's, here's Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. The left has taken up court packing. They're threatening to pack the court, just as Richard said earlier. If Biden wins, the Democrats take the Senate. Uh, they'll add three, four justices to the Supreme Court they're threatening. Rich Lowry writes the left, that the left has taken up court packing so readily shows how it never really took the court seriously as a court. Instead, it thought of it as a quasi-legislative body, useful to the extent that it enshrines the left's own policy goals. Close quote. Now, Rich is a conservative and editor of a conservative magazine, but you could almost drop out the ideological component and simply say, that large components of American, of the chattering classes view the court as a quasi-legislative body. And that's the prop. That's wrong, right? Yes. I mean, the simplest observation should be uh, that you should never be a judge such that every time you have a political preference, you always find that it is justified in the particular case in front of you. A good judge essentially will be able to say, this is what I prefer, but this is what I think to be the law. And oftentimes to be quite explicit about the difference. But today, uh, when you have fluid clauses like equal protection and privacy doctrines, which are not textually bound and so forth, it gives you a lot more. The other thing I just mentioned about this is the reason why the court has such enormous power today is sometimes it allows things, sometimes it strikes it down, you have no idea when and where, but also the scope of federal jurisdiction today, given the enormous power of the federal government, which expanded in 1937, means that things are now brought before the court, which would never be the subject of federal legislation to begin with. The Supreme Court today is basically a court about public law. It has nothing to do very much with private disputes, even areas like antitrust, which are as close to public as you get, generally tend to get relatively less coverage than they did 25 years ago. Okay, so here's another question. The ratchet to the left. Two quotations here. Here's Ross Douthat, New York Times columnist. For decades, conservatives elected Republican presidents, Republican presidents appointed Supreme Court justices, and yet about half of those justices turned out to be either outright liberals or so-called swing votes who always seemed to swing toward liberals. Oh, that- and here's another quotation from, again, 
hope this doesn't annoy you, John, Richard Epstein. Ooh. Defections from the conservative side are more frequent than those from the liberal. Chief Justice Roberts' critical vote to sustain the Affordable Care Act in 2012. Justice Anthony Kennedy's 2015 decision giving constitutional protection to same-sex marriage. And Justice Gorsuch's 2020 opinion that the 1964 Civil Rights Act protects both gay and transgender employees, even though such a thought could not have entered that was unimaginable in 1964. Okay. Voters elect Republican presidents, Republican presidents appoint to the Supreme Court, and half of those justices defect. Why? Why is it always in one direction? John? I think the conventional view amongst conservatives is that because the political and legal culture encourage people who grow in office by becoming more uh, liberal. And this has a special effect on uh, judges who have very, had previously very little experience or contact with Washington, D.C., or ever been under attack or had to, deal, or had to deal with all the kinds of political and cultural incentives there are. So if you're a, say you're Justice Kennedy, you're appointed by President Reagan, but you start to move towards the middle, then the argument is you start getting praised in the New York Times and CBS News, and you get invited to give speeches at fancy law schools. You get to associate with a nicer class of people in Washington. You <laughs> get invited to better parties. Hmm? I don't know if they're nicer, <laughs> but <laughs> more of them, perhaps. Uh, right. Whereas, you know, if you're, say, uh, Justice Thomas, you become more conservative, or you're more conservative than people thought, then you don't get, a, get invited to give all the fancy lectures at all the fancy law schools, perhaps. Uh, which I can tell you he could care less about. But, you know, the idea is, well, if you're coming in from outside Washington where you've been a fairly obscure judge out in the, you know, the, the country, then you, you get, it's easy to be seduced by all those kinds of, of encouragements. Also, you could say, look, part of it also, maybe there's a deeper explanation, is in this thing we start talking about in the beginning where Richard favors stare decisis. If you come in as a conservative and you believe in stare decisis <sighs> after the liberal revolution of the Warren Court, well, then you're going to keep upholding liberal presence. What you precedence? That's what you talked about, um, Peter. Called it a, a liberal ratchet. Yes. Right? If conservatives stay attached to stare decisis, even if they know the previous decisions are wrong, and then the liberal justices have no such similar commitment, except when it threatens cases that they like, then the court is always going to keep moving in a liberal direction, no matter what you do. And so that's why conservative justices. Uh, to prevent that from happening, have to have less attachment to stare decisis than they've had in the past. I, so, I have Richard, there, Richard, there's a G.K. Chesterton quotation, which I'll get a little bit wrong, but yeah. it was something like this. It is the job of liberals to keep on making mistakes, and it is the job of conservatives to prevent them from being corrected. No, Does that explain the ratchet? Does that explain uh, the ratchet? Uh, not entirely. Let me see. I, I think John gives too much of a broad scope and not enough of individual choices. So let me just go with the two major Eisenhower appointments. One, why did he choose Earl Warren? Well, it was a political, political deal related to 1952. He said, I'll get you a seat if you kind of back me. And it turns out it's Fred Vinson who dies. And so all of a sudden what we do is we have Warren getting the presidential uh, appointment to the chief justice position. Um, 
and by the way, if you looked at his past record, I don't think you'd necessarily know that it's as liberal as, liberal as he was. Remember, he was the man who organized the Japanese internment, was the attorney general in the state of California, which should have been to his lasting thing. Uh, there wasn't much vetting by anybody then of these things because the Supreme Court was lauded as a somewhat less important institution. Uh, so you get to Brennan. Eisenhower is well ahead and going on. He decides to give the recess appointment to Bill Brennan, right, uh, to carry New Jersey without thinking about the long-term consequences of that appointment for anything else that goes on. Uh, when it came to Sandra Day O'Connor, who's also had a somewhat of a leftist, uh, leftward drive on that foot, I think there were one or two people in the Arizona delegation that kind of said, this is somebody whom you ought to appoint. And, you know, that was fine by Reagan. He was looking for a woman and she kind of fit the bill. And in many ways, she outperformed expectations on some of the federalism issues. But in other cases, you know, towards the end of life, she too became a little bit wobbly. Uh, so you go to Justice Stewart, uh, Justice Souter. I mean, uh, essentially the choice in the White House at that particular point was between Souter on the one hand, who had just been appointed to the First Circuit, and Edith Jones. Um, who was a tiger, right? Uh, and it turned out, uh, Senator Rudman, I think it was, or some such right, person. Warren Rudman. Warren yeah, Rudman. he said, you know, Suter's a, a good guy. Why don't you nominate him? And so what you do is you get a perfectly spent the center-left justice out of it. I once did a calculation, by the way, Edward Levy, making sure that John Paul Stevens got it, the same thing. I did a calculation from about 1955 to about 2005, 50 years, that on average, there were about 150 court years of right-side appointees who had voted more to the left. Um, that's three right. seats. So it's just since 2005, by the way, this has not happened, right? And that's because the vetting game has changed really Right, John, the Federalist Society, the vetting that goes on now is much more thorough. For sure, it's more thorough than it was in the Reagan years when, when all right. Well, Richard uh, makes a good point also when you go through all those names, you realize the talent pool was not that deep, surprisingly, uh, to fit the political needs of the Reagan administration or the Bush administration. But so Antonin Scalia, Richard, I think you're going to dislike this. And, and so if I'm wrong, say so. Maybe not. Forget it. I'm sorry I tried to predict your view. You are you live in my head. Not, not only do I have you in my screen, but I think, what will Richard and say? If already, I already, there's not a lot of space in there for more than exactly, one. Exactly, exactly. There's so, oh, so long as I keep is. John out of your mind, we're in fine shape. <laughs> <laughs> Antonin Scalia and Robert Bork and the whole originalist movement, which was just getting started really in the 80s and now has blossomed into a through, and and excuse me, I am. I should of course include you, Richard. Much of your work fits right into that body of broadly speaking conservative legal thought. I know you consider yourself a libertarian. Fine, but for for my purposes now, there is there is a richer talent pool because there's a wider, deeper body of thought now. Is that correct? Well, when I was asked to give a speech to the Federal Society last year after Mitch McConnell spoke about all the judges he appointed, I said, look, I'm responsible in many ways with others to training them. And the secret for chaining great justices is to stress Roman riparian law. And standing there on the platform was David McIntosh and Noel Francisco, both of whom are my Roman law students. And there were probably 50 people in that audience who I taught in one way or another Roman law. Um, 
I think what happens is you cannot change somebody to be a serious justice if you start on the politics and then go back to the principles. Why do you mm. want to talk about something as crazy as Roman law? Because it's a coherent system. And if you try to understand why it works, you can actually come up with answers that explains that it did work. And so you become much less committed to the fact that there are infinite numbers of degrees of freedom in the way in which you could decide cases. You become inoculated, as it were, by an innocent bug uh, so that you don't have the the kind of deep anti-originalist kind of theory. But the tension in the, in the libertarian side was very much sown by Scalia. If you're an originalist on the one hand and you have a very broad clause on the other, like the takings clause and so forth, judicial restraint doesn't get it right. And so most of his takings opinions are wrong precisely because in one case, uh, stop the beach renourishment, he didn't understand riparian law. He just got it wrong. Um, I don't mean this uh, as a joke, I mean, it's a serious statement. No, no, no. I know you, you, you took that, all that absolutely fascinating, and I don't doubt for a moment the validity of every word you just said. It's a little different from the point I was asking about, which is the development of a body of thought, conservative or originalist legal thought, over the last three decades. John? You have to start before. There aren't okay. that many conservative professors that have uh, students who have the opportunity to take Roman riparian law, thank God. But and what happened is I think the Federal Society... Um, it's not like the federal side has a book and says, memorize this book, learn these things and become a conservative lawyer or judge. But the, what the federal side did, I wish that this happened in field after field, is that it just said, let's have an open and vigorous debate so that law schools couldn't get away with impressing on young minds a singular view of oh, that the Warren court was right. Because what the federal side did is that brought in judges, brings in professors like Richard or me, brings in uh, for, uh, government officials, and they debate conservative liberal ideas. And the, the Federal Society, Ed, Ed Meese, as I recall, was central to founding the Federal Society, which it's it founded roughly when? Yeah, Ed Meese in the mid-80s, right? No, the, no, earlier. 1981. And, so and one of the leading lights of the Federalist Society today is Leonard Leo. We should, if you're going to mention the Federalist Society, we should mention this is all, all these things are done by dedicated individuals. Oh, yeah. All right, listen. What, what it did, Back, one last thing is that what it did, and what you're seeing now is that uh, the Barrett nomination, maybe Kavanaugh, Gorsuch too, you are seeing the, the maturation of all of those efforts and investments right. to produce free thinking people who happen to be conservative. Right. All right. Listen, back to the state of the court today. I just want to come back to one case, but I want to hit it head on. Ross Douthat, for many conservatives, the high court eviscerated its own authority decades ago when it set itself up as the arbiter of America's major moral controversies, removing from the democratic process, not just debates about sex and marriage and school prayer, but life and death itself. Those many conservatives include this columnist. That is to say, it includes Ross Douthat himself. Since I became opposed to abortion sometime in my later teens, I have never regarded the Supreme Court with warmth admiration or patriotic trust, close quote. Now, another couple of quotations, and then comes the question. Robbie George, Robert George, constitutional expert at Princeton. When the Supreme Court struck down all state laws providing unborn children with protection against lethal assault, it did so in a decision lacking any warrant in text, logic, structure, or original understanding of the Constitution. Now, Robbie George is, of course, a prominent conservative, and so you could argue that he would say that. Just two or three more quotations. 
the liberal Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School. Quote, one of the most curious things about Roe is that behind its own verbal smokescreen, the substantive judgment on which it rests is nowhere to be found. Close quote. The liberal Cass Sunstein of Richards Institution, the University of Chicago, quote, in the court's first confrontation with the abortion issue, it should have allowed the democratic processes of the states to adapt and to generate sensible solutions. Roe was way overreached, close quote. The late and revered liberal Archibald Cox of Harvard Law, neither historian nor layman nor lawyer will be persuaded that the prescriptions of Justice Blackman, who wrote the decision, are part of the Constitution. Last, last quotation, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, quote, the heavy-handed judicial intervention in Roe was difficult to justify and appears to have provoked, not resolved, the conflict, close quote. So for almost half a century now, Roe, which is an act, as Judge Bork used to say, that entire decision contains not one sentence of legal reasoning. It has undermined the authority and legitimacy of the court and poisoned the nation's politics. And if the left protests that confirming Judge Barrett to the Supreme Court will place Roe in danger, so be it. Roe should be in danger. John? You could say it reminds me of another quote. Like the, there's no legal reasoning in Roe, including the the and but and the periods. There's just like, there's, it's a terrible opinion. Liberal, uh, well-known liberal scholars and conservative scholars both agree. In fact, uh, liberal scholars spend a lot of time trying to figure out alternative justifications for a right to an abortion. The court in that case never really explained where it came from, how it's consistent with the constitutional text, structure, its history. It would have been, I agree, it would have been much better for the court and our politics if we treated abortion just like we treat a, a, a lot of all of public policy decisions, including life and death decisions that we handle at the state level all the time. And I'm, I'm someone, if I, in California, if abortion came up for vote, I would vote for it. But I don't think it's up to the Supreme Court to tell all 50 states how to do it. If Judge Barrett, so here's the ironic thing. Judge Barrett, suppose she goes on the court. It's a political process. It gets nasty. She does sit on the court. Suppose she provides the fifth or sixth vote to overturn Roe. Even though that might be seen as a political act, the long-term effect might be a healthy one to depoliticize the court. Maybe we won't care about the court so much once it's not deciding cases like Roe. Maybe the confirmation hearing process will return to what it was in Richard's golden days because the court itself won't have so much power and we won't worry so much about the individuals who happen to be on it. May I make one observation? One of you, the quotes, uh, you, absolutely. One of the quotations you did not pick was from the article I wrote in 1973. <laughs> I quoted you all. There are many, many since, Peter. Yes, but, no, but like, there was an you wrote, you wrote a piece on Roe the year it came, the year it was. Of course, I was down. asked by Phil Curlin to write it. And I wrote the following attack on Roe, which is that if you understood the basic structure of the police power, you cannot duck the question of, quote, when is a person to use the expression of uh, Curlin, and that you couldn't find any point in the cycle after conception that was more powerful than conception itself. And so even though you normally believe in ordinary liberty, protecting the health of an innocent party gives you a full justification. That was the argument that I made. Uh, the heading that uh, Curlin put on it was a completely different heading. He put on substantive due process by any other name. 
He wanted to make this case the equivalent of Lochner in New York, which he also loathed, uh, for being a form of judicial legislation. I, however, not knowing what the title was, I've always defended Lochner on the grounds that if you apply the same theory about health and safety and so forth, that's just a straight anti-competitive statute and has nothing to do with protecting worker stuff. So my defense of the uh, decision or the attack on Roe was not the one that most people make. John Ely was the most famous person to make it. Mine was the fact that if you take the internal logic of the clause and assume that there is coverage with respect to personal liberty in the Lochner style, the justification plays out completely differently. And that issue has been completely lost. Now, 50 odd years later, we do have this battle over stereo decisis, but I've never wavered from the belief uh, that in terms of the basic original decision, they had gone wrong. And the political consequences that uh, John pointed out and Ross Dutap pointed out are indeed correct. Uh, on other areas like with zoning decisions, I've always been in favor of intervention because the property rights arguments work out the other way. So a judicial restraint is not across the board right. Judicial intervention is not across the board right. I think one has to worry much less about institutions and much more about substantive principles in order to get these demarcations correct. And people on both sides are much more concerned with the institutional issues rather than with so-called Roman law type questions. Stop the beach root murders. What do we mean by avulsion? Richard, right? Richard, yes. you hear, you wake up six months from now in New York yeah. and you look at your phone or you get the New York Times, open the apartment door and there's the New York Times, been you bring it in and Roe has just been overturned the day before. Mm -hmm. Your reaction is relief? <sighs> pleasure, horror? What's your reaction? I, I think my reaction is uneasiness. Um, I'm in favor of the overruling because I thought the decision was originally right. wrong, uh, but I fear the reaction might be something untoward. I suspect it might happen, although Justice, Justice Roberts is very much on the stare decisive, don't upset the capital part, right, and so right. forth. Um, so a lot of it will depend on two things. One is what kind of opinion do they write when they overturn it? if they overturn it. And secondly, what's the popular response going to be? My hope would be that the opponents of uh, the defenders of Roe would go to the state legislatures and see if they could put their case forward. And that if they did so, I agree with John. At that point, you'd have much more institutional legitimacy on that point than doing it. Look, the difference between Obergefell and Roe or Griswold and Roe is Obergefell, the movement had already taken place on same-sex marriage. Politically, this thing was accepted in very large numbers of cases. The problem about Roe is it has never been accepted by the opponents. Uh, they regard it That's as- not much of a legal argument though. Richard. No, 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 but it's an argument to explain why the social dynamics are so okay. different. All right, Listen, uh, so, so what John, John I, I wanna ask about Richard's much beloved reform, which I have to say, the more I think about it, the better it sounds to me. But I just wanna to return to John on Roe. If, and I'd like to talk for a moment or two about reforms that we might envision of the Supreme Court. But did I hear you effectively argue just now that overturning Roe might be just about the most significant and salutary reform that could take place? Yes, if the, if the diagnosis is, which I tend to agree with, is that Roe has radicalized politics surrounding the Supreme Court, politics surrounding the Constitution, and you want to depoliticize it, then get Roe off the agenda. Get it off the agenda. All right. That either by saying it'll never be overruled, which I don't think is the case, or you could just say it was wrong and let the little political process answer the question. It was a plessy. It was a plessy. 
It was no, a no, bad no. decision from the from the get go. Bad decision, overrule it, and let the political process make the choice, which will have much broader support, legitimacy, and people won't care about the Supreme no, Court. No, 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 no. Oh. I disagree with the comparison to Plessy, because if what you're saying about Plessy is it's wrong, we should leave it to the legislature. That left it to the legislature. So now the oh, legislature. Fair. That's fair. Right, but, yeah. So what happened? But if the comparison is, is that the bad was a bad decision, improperly. Yeah, I mean, reasoned. but the reason it was such a terrible decision was that it misused the police power argument again. But this is not going to be before Judge Barrett, I think. No, but I mean, but, but, but I think if you want to understand what's going on, the reason why Plessy is easy to overturn is that it offends every classical liberal principle which limits the scope of the police power and disrupts voluntary arrangements for no particular reason at all. And so I would overturn Plessy v. Ferguson no matter what one did with respect right. to Roe. Okay, okay. On, to, on to Richard's reform. And here's Richard's reform. Limit Supreme Court justices to single terms of 18 years each, keep the court at nine justices, stagger the terms so that a president, the president, whoever the president may be, gets to make two appointments per four-year term. And I don't know whether this is part of Richard's or whether this is an elaboration that I read elsewhere, but the suggestion is that the president, these should be timed such that the president makes one nomination in his first year of his term and another nomination in his third year. So you eliminate altogether the question of nominations during presidential Elections. election years. You also, it occurs to me, we touched on this earlier, you also eliminate the problem of John Paul Stevens sticking around until he's well into his 90s, of William O. Douglas refusing to retire from the court, and you see the Justice Douglas in his final days being wheeled in, half paralyzed from strokes, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg sticking around. What, uh, you both seem to have the feeling she stayed around too long. It, yes. it eliminates that problem, and it eliminates it eliminates these horrible political Donnybrooks that come when somebody dies. We have this at Ross Dow that wrote it, that permitting important questions in the nation to be decided by the deaths of octogenarians is too close to the Soviet Politburo in the old days. John, brilliant, isn't it? No. Well, I presumptively don't like amending the Constitution for anything unless it's extremely important. This requires an amendment. This could not be done by statute. It's by statute. If you, because okay. judges have lifetime, they, they get to be judges for life mm. at irreducible salaries. So uh, I think this is part of making them independent uh, and but, making but, them more, hopefully more neutral. So I, I think amending the Constitution is a dangerous thing. Who knows what the actual provision will be? Who knows what the unintended consequences will be? Now, it is true that a lot of state Supreme Courts um, have a totally different approach. They elect people on the court, and they have these kind of term limits where you come up for re-election. Uh, but those courts are openly, most of them are openly partisan, and the, the their decisions are political. I don't want to see our federal courts be uh, getting to be like that. And then one uh, small thing about how it works in operation. It has this, as you described it, Peter, this nice kind of every president gets two. Right, That's right. assuming everybody serves their 18-year terms. So what happens if someone dies? What if someone leaves early? What if someone retires? You just because you schedule them out in that kind of rotation doesn't mean the vacancies will always occur on time every 18 years. A president could get a whole bunch in a certain period of time just through chance. Predictions. And I've got one last slightly intricate question to set up for you, intricate to this layman. Mm -hmm. Let's suppose for a moment 
only for a moment, that Judge Barrett is confirmed before the election. On November 10th, one week after the election, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in a new challenge to the Affordable Care Act, that is to Obamacare. Originally, as you well know, Obamacare imposed a penalty on those who failed to purchase health insurance. Chief Justice Roberts upheld the constitutionality of Obamacare by redefining the penalty as a tax and saying that therefore Obamacare came under the taxing powers of the federal government. Now Congress has eliminated that penalty, so even this Justice Roberts argument no longer even applies. There's been a new challenge, which argues that because Justice Roberts' argument no longer applies, the whole thing is unconstitutional. It's a very sweeping and very direct attack on Obamacare, and it comes before the court on November 10th. Amy Coney Barrett in a 2017 Law Review article written before she joined the court in Chicago. Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute, close quote. And now again, his argument is it doesn't even come to bear in the case. Is it conceivable that, what would this be? Six, seven weeks after she was confirmed, then Justice Barrett might vote to overturn Obamacare? We've been talking about Roe versus Wade, which if it's ever overturned, is this, that's off in the indeterminate future. This is a case that's on the docket. Could, is it conceivable that, we could, that such a major disruption could take place? John? Uh, of course. It wouldn't matter who filled the seat, whether it's Barrett or anybody else, they're still faced with this challenge. And I, I happen to agree with her. I think Chief Justice Roberts pulled a fast one. I think a lot of scholars do by pretending that if you didn't buy health insurance, you got to pay this. I, I think it's obviously a penalty he said, oh, no, it's really like an income tax. And so, therefore, the second thing I think Roberts got wrong was simply say, ah, the taxing power essentially knows no limits. I think that's actually the more interesting constitutional question is, can the federal government just call anything it wants to a tax or recharacterize it a tax? And then there's no more limits on federal power. And if you read Judge, I mean, sorry, Professor Barrett's writings, uh, and then as her performance as judge, she is very sensitive as a lot of the justices appointed by Republican presidents are, she's very sensitive to making sure we police the limits on federal power. That doesn't mean anything about whether she's in favor of health care for everybody or not. Right, right, right. Do it the right way. And the right way was not through this terribly complicated, screwed up, overly centralized Obamacare system. Now, it turns out I had actually written a brief in that case. I don't know if you're aware of it. Um, no, I'm not. Sorry. Uh, with me. Mario Loyola. Richard, I, can't, I, I just don't have time in my life to read everything that you but, write. But I mean, but we made all of these arguments, and, and Justice Roberts completely screwed up the, the tax point by, in fact, a permissive redistribution. But there were other kinds of cases which says, if you cannot do something under the Commerce Clause, you're not allowed to do it through the taxing power. And that's exactly what he did. He said, oh, I can't find this in commerce, but I could finding and taxing. And if you went back to the child labor tax cases of 1923, uh, there had been a following situation. In 1918, uh, uh, there had been passed a statute which had said that uh, nobody can shift goods into interstate commerce if, in fact, they're made with child labor. And this was an indirect effort to uh, overcome the local exclusive power under the uh, act 
the existing doctrine on commerce that said it was manufacturing was exclusively local. And then they said, okay, we're not going to regulate it. We're going to tax it to make the tax so prohibitive. And it was a grotesque tax. It was on the first item you send an interstate commerce, you pay 10% of your total earnings or something like that. It was crazy. And the Supreme Court refused to allow it. So Mario Lowell and I wrote, we cited this particular case. There are uh, cases involving the beer tower, liquor taxes and minimum ages saying you just can't do it in this way. And he just completely ignored that line of authority. And, and so it was really a quite dreadful opinion. And now what you so, do is you have 15 so, million people under these programs. You've got the old reliance interest problem coming up again on reversal. Right. So what, I'm, to all our listeners, I want to make an announcement. We are recording this on a Sunday. And I am in a Sunday frame of mind, which is I'm talking to two of my best friends and I'm just enjoying the conversation, so I'm not paying too much attention to the clock. I have to be honest about that. So here's the new the all, question all that just occurred. Are saying, what the hell's wrong with you, Peter? Why aren't you out playing golf or doing something <laughs> better in the garden? You spend all your Sunday afternoons talking to us two. To talking to the two of you, almost as good as golf. The two you almost you got rid of. I'm going to have to hook up to my. I took a. And have to cook up to my power source because you're running me out. I've got only 16, 16% left. Oh, you mean on your computer? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I, 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 oh, I, I, like, so I thought your pacemaker was about to go. You know, uh, thank God. I don't have one of those yet. No, you don't. All right, listen. So here's the question. Here's the question. What effect does, the, does Ju- Justice Barrett have on Chief Justice Roberts? I've, you both know him. Actually, I, he's a friend of many years standing because we worked in the same hallway in the Reagan White House three and a half decades ago, four decades ago. But I've heard it argued many times that if he were an associate justice, he'd have been more reliably conservative. It says chief justice, where he feels this terrible responsibility for the legitimacy of the institution and where he feels a responsibility for holding the associate justices together as best he can. It says chief justice that he's He's making decisions of which, for example, the two of you just disapprove. Amy Coney Barrett comes on. Now, broadly speaking, the conservative-liberal split goes 6-3. Does that cause the chief justice to become even more liberal, to prop up the liberal wing, or does it free him? John? I think it makes his vote matter less. I, I, I think you're right, Peter, in your diagnosis of the problem. Uh, he feels, this is the, the best face to put on it, he wants to lower the political profile of the court. But he thinks the way to do that is to cave in to demands from liberals in the political system. So he, he voted uphold Obamacare twice uh, during uh, the Obama years. And then he most recently, he uh, voted to prevent the overall the DACA program this last summer. Right, right. Voted to strike down a Louisiana statute on abortion, even though a few years ago, he he voted to uphold the exact same the law. exact same statute. Right. And so he, I think his view is, oh, the liberals and the public system keep attacking the court. I've got to make us less of a target by essentially doing things they agree with. The problem is that he makes the court even more vulnerable to political pressure by showing that he can be pushed around that way. If once you have six justices who are supposedly originalist, that's you know, Roberts can still have that concern. He can still vote that way but it's not going to matter if you have five conservatives who are committed to originalism. And so maybe the Barrett approach or the Scalia maybe approach, which is get the constitution right, that will depoliticize the court, may eventually prevail over the Roberts 
I'm a politician. I'm going to react yeah. to a little fishbowl of Washington D.C. Yeah, I have a I have Richard. A, the effect the effect of Justice Barrett. On well, the, I, I on think chief, I think she's much more rigidly principled than he is. But I have a slightly different explanation. Rigidly principled. Um, I don't mean that as a like, bad thing. No, I right. don't mean it as a bad thing. I mean somebody right. for whom consistency much, really matters. You right. have to remember where Justice Roberts was before he came here. He was an appellate advocate. And an appellate advocate has to take all sorts of cases, some of which he might disagree with. The way in which you become an effective appellate advocate is to compartmentalize your mind so that a decision on one particular issue doesn't influence what you think about another. I'm exactly the opposite time. I'm a man who has a theory of everything. And so to quote my old late friend, uh, Brian Simpson, he said, Richard, you are sufficiently crazy that you believe that your views on um, usually will influence your views on native originalist uh, marriage rights. I said, that's exactly right. I mean, to me, you've got to be able to see all these connections. Part of that Roman law universality again. Roberts comes from exactly the opposite tradition. So he is used to being able to make uh, very sharp distinctions between things which intellectually might stick together, which makes him somebody who's likely to do that. Um, but you remember, if you look at Justice Scalia, he has some real howlers too with respect to that, including uh, all sorts of mistakes, for example, in Smith against the employment situation, where there'd been a long settled tradition of accommodation. He imposed a neutrality rule, which was just wrong in terms of the history. And the problem, of course- before the court this term. Yeah, and it should be- over, it's up before the court again. Smith is just wrong. The reason, the weakness of originalism as a textual matter is there's so much in the Constitution which is a balancing issue. Free exercise of religion as opposed to the ability to protect children to get a decent education is one such trade-off. And if you spend mm -hmm. too much time on the text, you don't spend enough time on the justification side, which is what I referred to in explaining the difference between a Lochner decision on the one hand and a Roe decision on the other hand. And so constitutional interpretation must go beyond the text, and it's really difficult to figure out how you develop those rules of implication. And that's where all the classical studies make a huge difference. Gentlemen, last questions. These are brief questions, and I forbid Long answers. R R Roman riparian law to be raised in answering these questions. Five weeks from now, will Judge Amy Coney Barrett have been sworn in as Justice Amy Coney Barrett? Prediction. Richard? Yes. John? Yes. It'll happen. Five years from now, will Roe versus Wade still stand? Richard? 50-50. John? Oh, yes. I think it will be because it won't be, there won't be a case that calls for it to be overruled yet. Really? All right. Last question. I'm not asking how you voted last time or how you're going to vote, but I am going to ask this. Does his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett make you more or less inclined <clears throat> to vote for President Trump? Richard? Marginally more. I like the degree of courage, but I'm obviously uneasy about the entire process. Uh, but it makes me more inclined to vote in his favor because I think the Democratic response is too revealing. Is too revealing? It's, it's, yeah, it's too dramatic on the opposite side. I see. All right. John? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, actually, you want to say if you're worried about Trump being impulsive and a norbreaker, this is actually something he did in a sort of very regular, regular, transparent, open, and I think praiseworthy way. And furthermore, he chose that name from a list that he first made public 
more than four years ago when he was first campaigning for president. Yeah. So that's an impressive datum, isn't it? Do you, Richard, he's, even? He's been very good on the judges. There are occasional spots that you might disagree with. But again, you know, I'm so pleased that so many of my former students have been appointed judges on these courts that I have a kind of a vested interest. These are superb students uh, from many law schools, and I'm just proud of the extent to which they have been able to serve so well. And I think the attacks on them are extremely unprincipled because these are splendid human beings with impeccable credentials. John, one last question, but it's only for you. Half a century from now. Richard's still not going to answer it. Half, <laughs> half a century from now, you're on your deathbed. Will, oh, you by then, will you by then have achieved and appreciation for Roman riparian law. Hi, Randy, this is the scary thing. Look at this book on my desk. I already know about Roman riparian law. <laughs> if I'd known that you two are both insane. John, I, you. I don't think it's very interesting, so I never talk about it. That's the big John, John, John shows the narrowness of mind. On I'm this trying to close the show. Will you please let me do it? John Yu of the University of California at Berkeley Law School and the author of Defender-in-Chief and Richard Epstein, the irresistible Richard Epstein, the only man to whom I will listen on Roman Riparian Law, currently of New York University, emeritus at the University of Chicago, a fellow of the Hoover Institution, and the author of one volume after another, countless articles, and most recently, The Dubious Morality of Administrative Law. Gentlemen, thank you. I return you to your Sunday afternoons. You give me eight degrees of power. Thanks. <laughs> For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.